Welcome to Activate Church Podcast and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. Let me say this. This is like my favourite book. And I know that probably sounds like I'm making it up. You're like, you got to say that. You're the pastor. You don't mean that. It's true, actually. This is my favorite book. I read this book more than any other book. I think that the gospel is one of the uh, most encouraging messages you could ever hear. And this book really centers around the gospel. It really is the most encouraging uh, uh, story or message you could ever hear. And really, the Bible is a collection of books that are about people that have had encounters uh, with Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages, and I know this probably sounds cliche, but I will tell you anyway. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is John 3.16. And if you're new to church and you don't know what that means, that's cool. It basically says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... And whosoever, don't care about your race or your background. I don't care about what you've done with your life, the mistakes that you've made. The Bible didn't asterisk any of that. It says, whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but that person will in fact have eternal life. I love the verse that comes right after that. It says that Jesus wasn't sent to the world to condemn the world, but he actually came to the world in order that it would be saved through him. Isn't that the best message you've ever heard in your life? It's in summary, God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And even when you mess things up, His love for you is not dependent on the things that you do. It's completely dependent on the things that He has done and how He feels about you. And so tonight, if you're new to church, you haven't been in church for a long time, or you just had a bad week, doesn't bother me and it doesn't bother Jesus. He died so that tonight you could be in close proximity to Him. And I think that's a very encouraging message. I think that 66 books that center around people that have had encounters with God in the New Testament, it centers around encounters with Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to tell you about a group of people that had an encounter with Jesus and were completely transformed by that encounter. So I'm going to read to you tonight a passage of scripture. It comes out of uh, Corinthians. And if we can just go to that first slide right now. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Next one, guys. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. So no one's forcing them to do this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that you're in this place. 
And Father, I pray that tonight that each one of us would just have our hearts open, that we would be ready to hear uh, whatever it is that you want to say to us. And however you want to speak to us, God, I pray that, we're, that, that spiritually, God, we'd just be open to it today. May we be transformed by what we read and not just by our preconceived ideas, but I pray that what we see in your word, that it would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. That's how we do it at my dinner table, by the way. I say A and then the kids go, man. So let me try that with you. A. Oh boy, that was really good. I'm impressed, guys. All right. I want to preach a message to you tonight called Money Matters called Money Matters. And about three weeks ago, I really felt like God pressed me to speak on money and it's going to surprise you. But what you do with your income, what you do with your wealth, what you do with your money is one of the most important and as you will find tonight, spiritual decisions that you will ever make. I know it doesn't seem spiritual. That's okay. By the end of tonight, you'll agree with me. So anyway, uh, when I was growing up, you know what pants were really cool? And I'm looking out right now, and I'm thinking, you don't know what pants were cool when I was growing up. Maybe one or two of you. Not flares, that's 70s, man. I'm 34, jeez. You know what was, you know what was cool? We, we had these black tracksuit pants that were really kind of silky on the outside and like soft on the inside, and they had fluorescent stripes. Uh, someone's receiving this word at the front right now, and, and, and they had fluorescent stripes that went down the sides of the legs, and across the back, on, uh, across the back of your calf, there would be either a two-stripe or three-stripe fluorescent stripes that would just come across the back, and I'm thinking back to those pants right now and I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe we thought that that was really cool, but we did. I was thinking someone had to be the first brave individual that said, these are cool. Someone had to step out and be the very first person to actually do that. And in the 70s, they had flares and they had pants that just flow out. And, you know, I mean, Right now, we look back to that and we go, really? Oh, I can't believe that people wore that, but back then it was cool. But again, some brave individual had to be the very first person that put on those pants and said, these pants are cool. And then they set the example for other people that started wearing them, and I guess it just gained momentum. I remember the first time that someone wore skinny jeans and I was like, that will never catch on. It's like all the pants that I own now are all skinny jeans, right? And I thought, man, no one's ever going to wear that, but they did. And some brave individuals, the very first person to set the example, and they just shot out ahead of everyone else. And you know what it's like when you see somebody doing something uh, that is where they've shot out in front and you're thinking, man, they're either really cool or really weird. And I guess we'll find out in the coming season whether other people are going to wear what they're wearing. Somebody has got to set the example. Somebody's got to do it for other people to begin following. And one of the things that I really uh, discovered that I think a lot of people miss is that everything you do and don't do sets an example. Everything you do. See, this is what I think people believe. I think people believe everything you do sets an example, but everything you don't do sets an example as well. 
Everything that we do sets an example. Do you know when I was in uh, university, a group of guys, uh, I had lunch with them one day, and they came to me, and I don't know what gave them this impression, but they, they thought I might be a Christian. I did nothing to deserve that reputation at all. And they said to me, are you a Christian? And like they had suspected I might be. And I kind of looked around, want to make sure that sort of no one's looking. And I said, I am, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> and they said, why would you not want people to know that you're a Christian? And I said really simply, because in truth, my life is in such a mess right now that I would hate for anybody to look at me and think that this is what a Christian should look like. I didn't want anyone to know what I was, that I was a Christian. It wasn't that I didn't believe. I just thought I was a terrible example of one. Do you know that the Bible says that we are supposed to be ambassadors of Christ? In other words, we're supposed to represent God to people. We're supposed to represent the person of Jesus to people. In other words, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian or you're unsure about what you believe, you are totally off the hook tonight. But if you're here tonight and you would consider yourself to be a Christian, then the Bible says that you're supposed to set an example so that people can see Christ in you. How about that? We're supposed to set an example so that people understand more of who Jesus is and what he's like. In fact, the word Christian means little Christ. It means we're followers of him. It means that we act like him. We behave like him. And I knew that I was a really bad example. I remember I read something the Dalai Lama said. He said, I love, your I love your Christ, but not your Christians, for your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And it sat with me the importance of representing Jesus really well and setting the right example so that people can say, wow, that's, what a Christian is. Look at the example they set. Now, the passage of Scripture that I read to you today, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's writing this, trying to explain to the Corinthians about the example that's been set by a group of people called the Macedonians. And they're two separate groups of people, just separated geographically. And so they were, this may not make, by the way, much of an impact on you, but it's about to, and I'll explain why. The, the, the Macedonians were extremely poor people. In fact, if you um, understand what we just read, it said they were in extreme poverty. And the Corinthians were extremely wealthy. And just for the fun of it, I thought I'd explain why. If we can go to the next slide. Here is a map of where the ancient city of Corinth was located. And you can see that there are two bays that kind of meet. And they're connected by this really thin strip of land. And you can see that it was much easier for boats to pull into this port. And rather than take the 
perilous and treacherous journey uh, to, to travel around in, a, in, in the boat, they said, well, why don't we just pull into this port where it's really safe and then we can offload our goods and we will transport them upon this really thin and narrow strip that became a trade route. And they said, we will offload the goods on the other side and people can keep on sailing through in their boat. And because they were able to do this, because this was a, a, a trade route, then people, the people of Corinth were able to leverage this to make so much money. The people of Corinth were very wealthy people. There would be hotels like Airbnb just set up all over the place because they knew that they could leverage this fact that people would be moving through there. So restaurants and hotels and all the rest of it would be set up there and they made a lot of money money. And Paul is writing to the, that's all right, you can go to the next one. Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are very wealthy people and saying, the Macedonians have set the most unbelievable example. And he is hoping that just like flares in the 1970s, that they're going to see what the Macedonians did and it's going to start to catch. That's what he's hoping for. Now, tonight I want to say to you that it is not a problem to be rich it's not a problem to be rich. In fact, I hope that you are rich. I hope that you guys in your lifetime will be able to make a lot of money. There's no problem with being rich. Never feel guilty if you are sitting here today and being, and, and you would consider yourself to be rich. Please don't feel guilty about that. That's not what's going on here. But one of the things that you would have to recognize and one of the points that Paul is trying to make is that if you are rich, there is a responsibility that comes with being wealthy. There's a responsibility that comes with being wealthy. And the Apostle Paul, he was very serious about this point. And there are many times in the Bible where he reflects on this. And in fact, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, who was pastoring this mega church in Ephesus. And among this mega church, there were some very rich people. And so he writes a letter to Timothy to give him the courage to begin to speak to rich people. And if we go to the next slide, this is what he said. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty. It sounds like naughty. It kind of is, I guess. It really just means that you're proud and you're arrogant. Because, you know, he's saying that sometimes rich people think they're better than just everybody else because they're smarter than everyone else. That's how they got rich. So he says, tell them not to be prideful or arrogant but to, and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now if you read that passage it's written to who? The rich people. In other words tonight as you sit here there is potentially a loophole. That's all right guys you can go to the next slide. There is potentially a loophole in that passage of scripture for you. If you're not rich, you don't really have to pay attention to that. Isn't that awesome? In fact, if you are not rich, all the passages that Paul writes 
to Timothy and the Corinthians, you could, if you didn't consider yourself to be rich, you could afford yourself the right, the privilege tonight to think that every time you saw that, that that's just a part that applies to all those other really rich people, but not you because you are not rich. And I thought that what we could do tonight is begin to form kind of a baseline and we're going to find out who's rich. We're going to find out if you're rich. So in America, they did this, this research company called Gallup. They did this uh, study of people and they wanted to discover what people thought about who was rich and who was not rich. And so they, they did this study and they discovered something really interesting when they asked people who's rich. It didn't seem to matter what people's income was. No one ever really considered themselves to be rich. In fact, do you know what they discovered? The word rich is a subjective term. And rich, they discovered, is roughly two times whatever that individual earned. In other words, if you earned $50,000, they said a rich person would be a person with $100,000. If you earn $100,000 and you ask that person if they are rich, they would turn around and say, no, I'm not rich. Somebody with $200,000, they are rich. And you can see this is kind of a problem because no one ever thought, no one ever really discovers that they're rich. Rich is always somebody else with more than you. And they discovered something else which is kind of shocking. The more people earn, the less generous they are. They discovered the people that earn $50,000 on average gave away 6% of their income. And when they went to the people that earned $200,000, they discovered that the percentage of income that they would give away dropped from 6 to 4%. In other words, the more money they made, the more they kept for themselves. It's kind of like drinking salt water. You think that it's hydrating you, it's actually making you more thirsty. And the more people have, the thirstier they get and the more they actually keep. Let me just take this one step further, just so you understand. And this next uh, uh, amount of money that I uh, tell you about is broken down into Australian dollars. If you are in Australia and your income is $50,000, around $50,000, you are in the top 4% of earners globally. The top 4%. If you earn $65,000 per year in Australia, that puts you in the top 1% of earners globally. The top 1%. And I think to myself, it really doesn't matter whether you earn $50,000 a year or $65,000 a year, I think if you fit into the top 10% of earners globally, you would have to consider yourself 
rich. The problem is that when you're surrounded by other rich people, you don't realize that you are rich. So you live in the most livable city in the world with the best coffee in the world. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and you live in the outer eastern suburbs of the most livable city in the world. Most of you, anyway. And if you wouldn't consider yourself rich, maybe it's because you're comparing yourself to other rich people that you know. And here's what you really need to understand. Most of the problems that you have with money are rich people problems. If you can't afford a gym membership, that's a rich person problem. Some of you are very happy you can't afford gym memberships. You don't even want them. So I would, but you know, things are real tight. I would love to sweat, but I can't, you know. You can run anyway. If you can't afford to put petrol in your car, man, that's a rich person problem. And the reason why this is so important is that if you don't think you're rich, you will never understand the responsibility that comes with it. Because the responsibility will always belong to someone else. Now, I know that many non-Christians are generous with their money. But if you ask me, I think that generosity should be something that marks Christian people. Do you agree? That when people meet us, they should say, these people are the most generous people. And I'm not sure what I could say about what they believe in, because I'm not sure what I believe about that. But the one thing that marks all Christian people is they are unbelievably generous. And when people have an encounter with Jesus, something should happen to them and it should transform them and make them more generous people. And I will give you some great examples of this. There was a little man in the Bible by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector and everybody hated tax collectors. You know, they grouped them in, they grouped them in with sinners like, hello, we're all sinners, right? But they go, yes, those tax collectors and those sinners, you know? They, but they would lump them in like the Pharisees, the religious people said, oh, tax collectors, we hate those people. Do you know why they were so hated? Because the Roman Empire would tax people. And what would happen is, is that the, uh, the tax collectors, they would collect all the tax from people, but they would collect far more than what was required. And so they would pay the Roman Empire the taxes that were collected for a particular city or a town. And then they would keep the gap between what they collected and what was owed. And the problem was no one was ever really sure about the, how much was really being taxed. So they said, man, these tax collectors, they are terrible people. They're lying to us and we don't really know how much they're keeping. And this man Zacchaeus was one of them. Jesus is coming through town one day. And Zacchaeus was actually a very little man. So he climbs a sycamore tree and he's in the branches and Jesus is coming through and he sees this man Zacchaeus and he says, Ah, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. Zacchaeus says, Very well. So he sets up this, uh, no doubt, this lavish spread and it was incredible. 
And we don't really know about what took place there. We don't know the conversation that they had. We don't know everything that they spoke about. But at some point during that night, Zacchaeus stood up and he said, I'm going to now give away half of everything I have. Half my portfolio, I'm just giving it away. Man, he had an encounter with Jesus. With the remaining 50%, he said, if I've ever defrauded anybody of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount I defrauded them of. Now, I know that you think that this is a very physical, very practical sort of a message about money. And if that's what you think, you have missed something so significant tonight, which is that this whole issue of money, it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual thing. How is it that people had spiritual encounters with Jesus and it transformed them in a very practical way that made them be more generous? I started reading the Bible and, and, and trying to understand this issue about money. And I discovered that I don't look at money the way that Jesus does. I, when I became a new Christian, I thought about which were the really serious sins and which were the ones I could get away with. And I kind of ranked them and I'm like, well, I'm new to this so I can get away with this stuff down here. But I... I know that that's wrong, and I kind of put them in order. I started reading the Bible, I realized I still kind of do that. And I probably put them in the wrong order. There's a story about a woman named Mary Magdalene, and she was caught in the act of adultery. Like, caught in the act. Man, that's embarrassing. And they grabbed her. And they dragged her out into the street. How terrible would that be for these religious leaders to drag her out to shame her publicly? And they said, you know, the law says that we should stone her with rocks. And they said, uh, Jesus, what do you say about that? And they were hoping to trap him in front of people. And Jesus says, all right, I got you. He says, hey, tried this one on, guys. The person who's without sin, you cast the first stone. It says that the Pharisees, they walked away one by one, beginning with the oldest, because they were smart and they figured out that Jesus had them straight away, beginning with the oldest and ending at the youngest. The young ones are still like, we can still get him. And they couldn't quite figure out how, and then they just gave up and they kind of walked away. No, he's definitely got us. Then Jesus gets down and he says, woman, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, my Lord, no one. He says, well, neither do I condemn you, so go now and be in peace. And by the way, stop committing adultery. It's good advice from Jesus. She says, okay. If you, if you follow her journey, she's changed forever by this encounter. But then I keep reading and I realize there's this parable about this guy who's a steward. And, and, and this guy that mismanages his, his money and his portfolio, what does it say at the end of the parable except that he was cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? And I'm like, hold on a minute. The person who's caught in the act of adultery. If you asked me, I said, I would say that that's a more serious sin. And she gets off with this. He says, I don't condemn you. Go in peace. Great. The guy that mismanages his money casts into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I realized something. I don't look at money the way that Jesus looks at money. I don't see it as serious as he does. 
And I realized that what I need to do is I need to transform what I think to be in alignment with what Jesus actually says. You see, money matters because it's one of the most spiritual decisions you'll ever make. And the reason it is spiritual is because it reveals who your master truly is. Let's read this next slide. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve them both. That's what Jesus said. See, what we serve reveals our hearts, and that's what makes it so spiritual. Last week, I said that love looks like something. And in fact, love looks like serving. It looks like serving God. It looks like serving people. Love should have an outward expression of what's inwardly taking place in your heart. It should look like something. But do you know what loving money looks like? Yeah, it's really hard to pick what loving money actually looks like. And really, the truth is, is that loving money looks like your desires being fulfilled. It looks like all the things that you want being paid for. And the thing that's so shocking, and tune into this point, please, is that greed often disguises itself as need. And often what you find is you keep thinking that you need something when actually you don't. You're already in the top 4% of earners globally. You're already doing well for yourself and you keep having more needs. I discovered that you will never have enough needs. Do you know, the, the older you get, the more needs you have. I have even named my needs. Judah, Isaac, Eliana. They're my kids. The older I get, the more pressure is on me financially to supply more needs. There is more needs on me. But I'm saying that if you don't get this now, don't wait to a point when you're really rich to understand this point. You've got to begin to look at it from where you are right now. And this is what makes Paul's letter to the Corinthians about the Macedonians so amazing. Because the Macedonians that was so generous, exceedingly generous. And this is what absolutely blows my mind. You see, generosity is a condition of your heart, not a condition of your wallet. The term is subjective. If you're waiting to be rich before you start being generous, you'll never be generous because you'll never be rich. Does that make sense? You've got to make a decision to be generous from where you are right now. Here's what generosity actually means. It means a readiness to give more of something, especially money, than is strictly necessary or expected. Paul's expectations of the Macedonians was extremely low. In fact, let's just look one more time at what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and listen to this, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. No one forced them, begging us earnestly for the favor 
of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the, first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want to tell you three things about the passage we just read that are so counterintuitive, it should blow your mind. Here is the very first point. In a severe test of affliction or in severe affliction, they had abundant joy. I don't even know if I could say I've ever had severe affliction. But they had abundant joy. We have got to help people to understand that money does not bring happiness. And even though when I say those words, you've heard them a thousand times, I will share something with you right now that will blow your mind. I'm watching a TED talk yesterday. And it was a study done at Harvard University. And this is the longest study that has ever been developed to monitor the human race, ever. For the last 70 years, every two weeks, over 700 people were interviewed. It was, this is the most extensive human study and they looked at everything to try to understand people. And you're so lucky because I'm gonna boil 70 years down for you in one moment. You know what's amazing about this is they took these guys from Harvard University and they took these guys from Boston and all these different men and they, they put them together in this study and they started asking them all these questions and they wanted to discover what their life goals were. And their life goals, the, the, for the most part, most of them said that their life goal was to be rich. They did a study very recently of present-day millennials and they asked them, what are your life goals? And they said, we want to be rich. In 70 years, the goals have remained the same. People want to be rich because they think it can afford them the life that they really want. But do you know what the study discovered? The people that were rich were not the happiest. The people that were rich were the people that had the best relationships with their family and their friends and their coworkers. If you are rich in your relationships and rich in friendships, those people not only lived the longest, but they were by far the happiest people. And in fact, money had nothing to do with it. But in 70 years, even though you say, yeah, yeah, we know money doesn't bring happiness. The truth is the results of the study reveal that people still at the core really just want to be rich because we're led to believe something that's not true and we've got to break away from this idea that money brings happiness. Because 2000 years ago, these guys proved that it didn't. It says that they were in a severe affliction and yet abundant joy. Man, I wanna, I wanna know how to do that. It means to me that you could take away everything from someone and without lying, they could actually say, man, I'm so happy. There is just this joy that's overflowing in my heart. That's crazy. That's the first point. Here's the second thing that's counterintuitive. They were in extreme poverty, but overflowing generosity. Those words should not even be in the same sentence. How can you be in extreme poverty, overflowing generosity generosity 
I think that that is outrageous. This blows my mind that people would be extremely generous when they're extremely poor. But that's the example that they set, and that's why Paul wrote the letter. And here's my third point. They had little means because they were in extreme poverty. They had little means, and they gave beyond it. They gave beyond it. I figure if I've got 100 bucks in my account, my means to give is 100 bucks. Somehow they found the way to give beyond their means beyond their capacity. When I read that, I think, man, this is supernatural. Where did they find the ability to do that? I mean, is it just me or does this not seem crazy to you that the people with nothing had joy and were outrageously generous? And do you know what's even crazier? This is about to get to another level of crazy for everybody here tonight. Here's what's really crazy. They asked to do it. And they didn't just ask. They begged and then they considered it a favor. Come on. This is nuts, guys. This is crazy. People that had nothing begged for the opportunity to be generous. And when they gave them the opportunity, they said, thank you for doing me this favor. And I thought to myself, how Do you live like that? Where do you get the capacity to live like that? What's the secret? And if you keep reading, the very next sentence tells us what the secret is. And here's what it says. It says that they gave themselves first to the Lord. And that means salvation. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that this group of people had an encounter with Jesus and like Zacchaeus, it transformed them from the inside out. And when they gave their hearts to Jesus, they said, I am totally yours. They said, I'm not just going to ask you for salvation and take it and run. My life is not my own. You can have all of me. You have an all-access pass, Jesus, to my life. And if you want to leverage anything that I have for the good of your kingdom, it's yours. You can have my talent. You can have my time. And you can have my wallet. Anything you want, it belongs to you. Because there is such gratefulness in my heart when I see the end that awaited me. And yet because of what you did for me, I'm saved by grace through faith in your son, Jesus. Man, you can have me completely. Anything you want, it belongs to you. Do you know what's really crazy? Actually asked for it. Because it says that when they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, to the saints in Jerusalem. Do you know what they're saying? It was God's will that poor people with in extreme poverty, 
would give. Are you kidding me? Why would God ask people with nothing to give anything? Why would He do that? Do you know why? Because God can bless what people give. See, what you withhold belongs to you, but what you give, God blesses. And when you give and God blesses it, I'm telling you, He can give you more than what you ever give. I am the recipient of God's generosity and not in a spiritual way, but in a deeply practical way. So many times in my life, if I be generous towards God, I don't care about what I'm losing because I know that He can bless me abundantly with what I give to Him. And all of this to make one really simple point to you tonight, which is this. Once you give yourself to God, all other giving is easy. Once you give yourself to Him, all other giving is easy. And so here's what you need to do tonight, this week, this month. You need to look at your current level of generosity and see where you're at on the scale of things. You need to reassess maybe your needs and make sure that your needs really are actually needs. You need to give God an all-access pass to your life. And it's not just serving on Sunday. It's not just Sunday. You say, you can have me seven days a week, all of my time, my talent, my treasure. It all belongs to you. And then you can go ahead and do this. And you can develop a strategy for this. I, I do. Let me tell you the strategy that I use. I have a threefold strategy for my generosity or how I give or how I steward by the way, steward, if you're new to that term, it really means what you manage on behalf of everyone else. And if you read the Scriptures properly, you'll see that everything you have comes from God. So I'm simply managing it for Him until I end up up there. And so here's my threefold strategy, really simply for you in just, a, just 30 seconds. Number one, if God tells me to do anything, I just do it. I don't even care if it's crazy. I don't care how outrageous it is. If God says, I want you to be obscenely generous and give this amount of money or do this or do that, I will do it because I want to be obedient and I'm not waiting to be paid back and I don't care whether I am. It's that if God asks me and He speaks to me, man, I'm gonna give it. That's the first thing. After that, if I'm trying to figure out what I should do financially and I'm unsure, I default to biblical principles. We call that stewardship. And there are so many biblical principles outlined in God's Word. So I just simply, I told you I love this book. I just follow the teachings of God and Jesus. And I say, well, I'm going to default to biblical stewardship. And this is, this is what I do with my money. And if it doesn't break biblical stewardship, I follow my convictions. So I would do it in this order, a word from God, stewardship, and then my convictions. Because if my convictions, it doesn't matter how much I really feel something, if they ever decide to break protocol and break biblical principles in stewardship, 
I realize I'm, make, I'm stepping out of turn here. I'm making the wrong decision with my finances. So word from God, stewardship, and then finally, my convictions after that. And the reason you need to do this, and I say do it immediately, do it tonight, go home, think about it. It's the only way that you can be sure that your need hasn't masked itself and it's actually greed. It's the only way you can know that Jesus truly is your master and money hasn't slipped in and taken his place without you realizing. Is that all right? You understand that? Why don't we stand together tonight? We trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website, www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.